Heavenly Father, Lord and God, you are the God of kings. And you are our God. And you have stooped down to our level. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray that we would be humble before you. We pray that we would listen and hear and obey. And that we would have joy. That we would have comfort. That we would have strength for life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in going through the book of Daniel, uh, at the very beginning, I posed two questions uh, that I think are at the heart of what's going on in the entire book of Daniel. The first one is, who is in control? The second is, is God with his people? Is God still with his people? And that first question is very much front and center in here. That second question about God being with his people is sort of in the background. Uh, uh Here we have Nebuchadnezzar, an amazing king, powerful and glorious enough that God describes him as a great tree, giving giving life to all those around him. And again, we're seeing that God is dealing with him. And this is an amazing thing in itself. This is sort of Nebuchadnezzar's third chance. Uh, In chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar isn't all that aware of, of Daniel uh, uh, or of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, they're sort of in the background uh, at the cafeteria asking for vegetables, uh, but they're not really in the king's presence yet. But God, of course, is with them. And in eating vegetables, they grow and they're more healthy than the, all, all the other guys around them. But in chapter 2, we get... King Nebuchadnezzar coming before God and getting his first chance. And he receives the impossible interpretation of the dream where Daniel tells him the dream he had and gives him the message of the statue where where Nebuchadnezzar is the the head of gold, but where the whole statue is, is knocked over and destroyed by a rock, not Uh, cut not by human hands that becomes the mountain of the kingdom of God and he receives the message Nebuchadnezzar you are not in control God is on chapter 3 we saw that Nebuchadnezzar though he he acknowledged God for a moment uh, he didn't like that dream very much and uh, he decided to make the whole statue out of gold and to tell everyone to worship the statue Uh, and he saw God preserve Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and a fourth being, which may have been an angel, may have been God himself, walking around in the middle of a fire. And Nebuchadnezzar is again shown who is in charge. And that was his second chance. Well, he forgets that lesson. And chapter 4 is more than a second chance. And here we see amazing grace in action to a pagan king and a glimpse of the coming day when all people would worship God. Well, what happened? Uh, I won't reread the whole thing. Uh, 
But Nebuchadnezzar tells us in his own words, uh, he has a dream again. This one terrifies him again. And again, he calls for all his magicians uh, and interpreters and everybody else. And you might wonder, why not just ask Daniel? Um, I don't know. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream starts well. There's this there's this giant tree. And uh, in verse 11, the tree grew and became strong, a tree in the midst of the earth. Its height was great. Uh, it reached to heaven. It was visible to the whole earth. A little bit of a some Genesis imagery. We almost have Garden of Eden imagery, Tree of Life imagery. We also have a little bit of Tower of Babel language. Uh, that the people in the, in the region of Babylon at, uh, in Genesis called the Plain of Shinar. Uh, but it's the same place. They wanted to build a tower that everyone could see. Well, here Nebuchadnezzar is described that way. And in verse 12, its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and there was food for all. And this dream starts out wonderfully. But then it takes a darker turn, and Nebuchadnezzar sees a watcher, a holy one. Uh, You think an angel coming down and decreeing that this tree is going to be chopped down, uh, and just the stump is going to be left, and it's going to be sealed for a while, and then later it'll come back. This is going to go on for seven times. And Nebuchadnezzar knows that this is a big deal, but he doesn't know. Like, what is this? Well, Daniel comes. And we get a very interesting response. I think if I was Daniel, I would have thought to myself, this is what I've been waiting for. You carried us away from our people. This is what's going to happen to you. You're going down. I think I would have interpreted this with a grin. But Daniel, Daniel is disturbed and anxious and worried. Uh, It bothers him. And we know that Daniel isn't just worried that, you know, he's not thinking, well, if I tell tell him bad news, he'll cut off my head. He's told the king bad news before, uh, and Daniel never, when we see him, has any trouble uh, giving bad news or giving straight news to anyone. Uh, He's very bold, and uh, we see time and time again, Daniel comes before kings. And he doesn't say, O king, live forever uh, and grovel the way they do. He just says, O king, this is what's going to happen. Well, here he says, uh, in verse 19, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and the interpretation for your your enemies. Daniel seems to have had real affection for Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, And he even gives him a warning. Uh, In verse 29, uh, after he, he gives the interpretation, sorry, verse 27, therefore, O king, let my counsel be accepting 
acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel is concerned for his friend and hopes that Nebuchadnezzar will repent. He doesn't. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar hears the interpretation. He hears you're going to be brought low uh, seven times. By the way, uh, seven times may mean seven years. Uh, One interpretation I came across says think more like seasons or six months, so three and a half years. Another suggested this might mean seven months. Uh, the Hebrew word times is not uh, is not the same as years. So if you're ever reading about this, you might come across some scholars say, we know enough about Nebuchadnezzar, we know that he didn't go crazy for seven years. Well, we don't know that much. Um, but it is possible that it was less. Um, certainly long enough that his hair grew uh, And he got dreadlocks. Um, But it didn't have to be seven years. But it was long. And Nebuchadnezzar hears that this is going to happen. And he forgets. And one day, he's feeling particularly puffed up. And his ego gets the better of him, which seems to happen a lot. Uh, And we read these lines. Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? We don't know if he's talking to anyone else or just strutting around uh, talking to himself. Uh, This is characteristic for Nebuchadnezzar. We know this because We have an inscription on the Ishtar Gate. Uh, If you don't know what that is, um, it's the actual gate of the city of Babylon. uh, And you can see parts of it um, in the British Museum, but I think uh, most of it is in, I think it's in Berlin. Uh, And you can actually see it. But we have an inscription. And I won't give you the whole thing, but... Nebuchadnezzar basically has this inscription that says, I built this uh, so that all the people would be in awe. And uh, very pompous, very arrogant, very front and center. Every person who he conquered, who came into his city, would see that. And here we have similar language. Nebuchadnezzar is filled with pride, focused on himself and his power, and his glory. And he had already been warned more than once. And the moment the words are out of his mouth, he hears a voice and things come true. In verse 31, there was a voice from heaven O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. 
and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be brought from the place of a king to the place of an animal. Uh, Some have suggested that uh, this may have been a message, you're going to become like Enkidu from the Epic of Gilgamesh, who was like this wild man. Uh, Don't know that for sure. But this would have spoken to Nebuchadnezzar, and he understood. And he had forgotten every lesson that he had been taught before. And yet, uh, it's happening just as it as God intended. It was God who brought Nebuchadnezzar into power. Way back in the book of Habakkuk, uh, the prophet Habakkuk hears this, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings, not their own. Of course, the prophets have many other things to say about the Babylonians and later about the Persians. And from Daniel 2, 37 and 38, Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar forgot that God was in control of everything. He even forgets that he worships pagan gods and seems to ignore them. And and all he sees is himself. And yet he's brought low because God is in control. Well, what do we do with this text? We love control. Some of us want everything in order. Some of us just want our little corner to be neat and tidy. We have this sense that there are some things we can control and some things we can't. Uh, biblically, that's, that's kind of rubbish. Uh, we control nothing. And some of you have been through seasons that let you know that. Uh, Anya and I certainly have when when our daughter Eliza was born. And still, there are times when we see that very clearly, that we are not in control. And there will be times coming ahead where we will see that, uh, not just us, but all of us. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had this to the extreme, and he thought he was in control of everything. Few of us go quite this far, but we do fall into the temptation that we can be master of our fate, that we can hedge our bets, that we can get things together so that we won't have to worry because of what we have done. Jesus himself spoke a parable in Luke 12. Jesus told them, parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, 
what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, though whose will they be? So it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Of course, Jesus goes on to say, store up treasures in heaven. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, we see similar warnings where King Solomon reflects that he sought after meaning in possessions, in accomplishments, uh, in love and pleasure, and he found that they were all meaningless. And he found that all the great stuff that he had done would one day go to some other guy who might take great care of it or might wreck it all. And he understood that we control nothing. Well, as we go into the new year, uh, one of our temptations is to retake control. And uh, culturally, year after year, we, we think we'd get the message that we're not very good at this and that um, we'd kind of give up trying. And on the other hand, there is a, a healthy thing about trying to do better next year than we did this year. But the temptation becomes a, a dangerous one when we think that we're doing this in our own strength for our own good, that we have some power over what's going on around us. We don't. But the comforting message for Israel behind the scenes of this text and the comforting message for us is that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't in control. God was. And we're not in control. God is. Well, how do we live this out? Does it mean that we shouldn't try to do anything? Does it mean that we should uh, give up 401ks, 403bs, uh, IRAs, etc.? Uh, does it mean that we, we shouldn't make plans? Um, no, on the contrary, it's, it's our calling as Christian, Christians to be good stewards of what God has done. Um, but James says this in James 13 to 16. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make a trade and make, make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say if the Lord wills. We will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. There's some interesting things going on here. One is, don't boast arrogantly. Second, acknowledge that God is in control. And third, in that last verse, 
If you know the right thing, do it. Um, we're not supposed to actually sit back and just say, well, God's in control, so I'm not going to do anything. Um, instead, we're actually to- told, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So, again, how do we act responsibly but avoid acting in prideful ambition? The first is to acknowledge God. This is the opposite of what Nebuchadnezzar did. When he stood on his lanai, looking out uh, over Babylon, maybe you didn't know they had lanais in Babylon, but uh, he ignored God and he took credit for everything himself. How differently his life would have been if he had looked out and said, praise be to God who who enabled me to do this. Uh, Would have spared him a lot. Uh, The same thing is true of the man in the parable. In his mind, he had things under control. Uh, And he didn't. And if he acknowledged God, things would have been different. Now, what I'm not saying is that if we acknowledge God, that our barns will be full, that our retirement accounts will be uh, bursting at the seams, and that everything will go swimmingly all the days of our life. Um, That's not a promise in the New Covenant. We are promised that God will be with us and that he'll direct everything for our good. But that's primarily a spiritual good. And we are promised that he'll give us strength to endure whatever temptation and whatever trials come our way. But we are not promised that if we acknowledge God that he'll make us happy and rich all the time. Well, as well as acknowledging God, we need to surrender to God. Uh, And this is what happens at the end. Nebuchadnezzar cries out, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He was restored. He blessed the Most High. He praised him. It says, I bless the Most High and praised and honor him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar submits, acknowledges to God, and surrenders to him as king. And as we go forth from here, we need to acknowledge God, and we need to to surrender our lives to him. Now, here at Trinity, we want to be very clear, and I want to be very clear, that what I'm not saying is that in order to be a Christian, you have to achieve a certain level of submission. That is, to become a Christian. We come empty and broken, possessing nothing, unable to do anything. And salvation is not something we achieve. It's not something we get ready for enough. Uh, It just happens by grace. 
Nebuchadnezzar didn't fix things himself. Just one day, his his brain was healed, and he looked up and he had the good sense to praise God and realize, God told me this would happen. But if on one hand, salvation is a free gift, on the other hand, it costs everything. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you need to take up your cross daily and follow me. And he says, in order to gain your life, you have to lose it. That we give back everything to God. That our whole lives are meant to be, as Paul says, a living sacrifice. That there's nothing that we hold on to. Now, we're not going to do that perfectly. But there's nothing in our lives that we can say, this is mine, God, leave this alone. All things belong to him. And our response to the grace we have been shown is that we should humble ourselves before him and cry out to him as our God and king and to acknowledge him as the most high God, as Lord of kings and Lord of our lives. Now, if you're someone who's been listening, kind of from the outside, you're hearing about all, all of this for the first time, uh, and if you've never come to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Nebuchadnezzar was forgiven. Nebuchadnezzar was the enemy of, of the Jewish people at the time, and he was immensely proud, and God forgave him. At least I think he did. There's some debate. Did he just say uncle, or did he become a believer in the one true God in a real way? I tend to think he did, uh, based partly on, on his profession. But certainly we see in the Bible, in Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's the only requirement to become a Christian. And God will help you with the rest. For the rest of us, be encouraged. God is in control. He is at work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you did in despite Nebuchadnezzar, through Nebuchadnezzar. Thank you for all you've done in our lives, despite our rebellion. And thank you that you're at work in us. We pray that we will be humble. Keep us from pride. Keep us from trying to control things and to submit all things to you, even the little things and declare you as our Lord and Savior and Lord of our whole lives. Bless us as we partake your body and blood. Encourage us in Jesus' name.